We ask that we continue to lift up the name of the Lord, for there is none like him in all the earth. What a Savior. Amen. Amen. Bless his holy name. As we continue this morning in the book of John, we find ourselves at a very incredible point. We find ourselves in chapter 11, verses 17 through 37 of the book of John. And we find a claim that is as important today as it was then, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I ask that you would turn in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 11, verses 17 through 37. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you acknowledge it by saying, He is awesome. Praise his holy name. And the word of God says this in John 11, verse 17 through 37. Now, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he have life. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is God's word, read for God's people, accepted as such. You may be seated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is by far the most important event of all of history. And this is for several reasons. First, when we look at the resurrection, we see that it witnesses to the immense power of God the Father. To believe in the resurrections, my brothers and sisters, is to believe in God. A God who really exists, a God who created the universe, a God that has all the power over it, and a God that has the power even to raise the dead. If God does not have such power, then God is not worthy of our faith 
and worship. Only God who created life can resurrect life from the dead. Only God can reverse the hideousness of death itself. Only God can remove the sting and gain victory over the grave. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, these words. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come, then it shall come to pass what has been written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul doesn't tell us, but we can see right here in Scripture that in the twinkling of an eye, that somehow God transforms that moment into a godly changing room and we take off this perishable body and put on one that is imperishable. We take off this mortality and we place upon us immortality. When we see Jesus being resurrected from the grave, God just reminds us of his absolute sovereignty over life and death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is important because it validates who Jesus himself claimed to be, the Son of God and the Messiah. In fact, it was a sign that gives authenticity to the fact that Jesus is everything that he is claimed to be. Matthew 16 and 1, or really Matthew 16, 1 through 4, says this, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered, when it is evening, you said it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left and departed them. What was the sign of Jonah? Three days in the belly of the well, three days in the earth, and he would rise again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has been attested by hundreds of eyewitnesses. It is proven that he is the Savior of the Lord. Another reason the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important, because it proves his sinless character. It proves his divine nature. The scripture says, as our elders spoke this morning in his prayer, that God, he is, Jesus Christ is God's holy one who would never see corruption, and Jesus never saw corruption even after death. The book of Acts says this, and we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, his children, by raising Jesus, 
as also is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Acts 13, 32 through 35. This is the basis of the resurrection of Christ that Paul preached. Acts 13, 38 and 39. Though Jesus, or rather through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. The question remains this morning, do you believe this? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only the supreme validation of his deity. It also validates the Old Testament, all of the prophecies foretold of the suffering servant that would come and his resurrection. Paul taught that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. It was necessary for Christ to be risen from the dead. Christ recognized that this was his mission upon this earth. If Jesus Christ, Paul taught this, if Jesus Christ is not resurrected, then we have no hope. We have no hope that we would be resurrected as well, not apart from Christ's resurrection. If Christ is not resurrected, we have no Savior. There is no salvation. There is no hope for eternal life. Our faith will be absolutely useless. The gospel itself will be totally powerless. And we would still be in our sins and remain unforgiven even to this moment. That's why it's so important that Jesus reminds us, I am the resurrection and the life. In this statement, he claimed to be the source of both. There is no resurrection apart from Christ. There is no eternal life apart from Christ. Jesus does more than just give life. Jesus is life. And he has a power over death in him. We who believe in Jesus Christ will personally experience resurrection because having the life that Jesus gives, we have already overcome death. And because of that, it is impossible for death to win in our lives. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we stand before you this morning overwhelmed by your grace, your goodness, and your great mercy. Your grace is evidently to us purely by the fact that you have made a way out of no way for each of us to be reconciled with you through the precious blood of your son. Your son, who is a lamb of the world, who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, your goodness is seen in the very fabric of who you are. Your goodness and your kindness has appeared by sending your son, Christ Jesus, to save us. Not because of works we have done, for we have betrayed you. We have sinned against you, and we have rejected your counsel. But only because you love us 
and your love for us was stronger than our hate toward you. Love won. And your great mercy we are awakened to each and every day. Mercies upon mercies come from your very hand. Undeserved favor surrounds us. It engulfs us. It restores us. So teach us today that your son, Christ Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. Teach us that because you raised him from the dead, we have all been forgiven and you will raise us as well. It is in the matchless name of your son and our savior that we pray and all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Bless his holy name. As we use verses 17 through 20, really as an introduction to what is about to happen in these incredible events, we see that verse 17 says, Now when Jesus come, or when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now remember last week we said when the messenger brought the news that Lazarus was ill, it took one day to reach Jesus. Jesus knew immediately because of his supernatural knowledge about everything that Lazarus had died right after the messenger had left Bethany. So Jesus added two more days to the trip, two more days to his arrival, so that when Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. We also share with you that at the time, Jewish sources believe that a soul, the soul of a person, would hover over that person's body for three days trying to enter back into it, but on the fourth day when it went into decomposition, the soul would depart. And at that point, to these early Jewish believers, death was irreversible. Now take that in stride with what Mary said in verse 39. Lord, by this time, there will be an order because he has been dead for four days. Now, these verses going forward from where we are in 17 will establish the awesome character of the miracle that is about to be performed. In fact, it will take away any doubt of why Jesus waited two extra days because he wanted to prove to those who were experiencing this miracle that this was a resurrection and not a resuffocation. Look at verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. The text tells us that Bethany was 15 stadia, away from Jerusalem, adds up to like 202 yards and nine inches, and adds up to 3,033 yards, which is a little less than two miles. But John's implication here is that he wants us to see that many Jews came out to comfort Martha and Mary, and they came from as far as Jerusalem, which means and suggests that this was a very wealthy and prominent family at the time. 
these Jews came to be witnesses of the resurrection unbeknownst to them. They really came to be mourners and consolers for the two sisters. But we see here that because Jerusalem was only two miles away, it shows us the strength of Jesus Christ who did not cower but came to minister to these girls with great confidence and compassion despite the danger. That he anticipated his own death, burial, and resurrection, but this did not keep him away. For Jesus, the circumstances did not matter. Fulfilling his mission was all that mattered. Verse 20 shows us, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. I want you to see this picture because it's really played over again from Luke 10, 38 through 42. But we see here Martha presented as one who's wired with the spirit of involvement, wired with a spirit of always having an effect, uh, a more active spirit. You see, Martha's spirit contrasts against Mary, and even though Martha's spirit is more aggressive, it's not more important than Mary's peaceful acknowledgement and acquiescence. And then you see further, if you look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, you see a striking contrast there. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. But one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You see, Mary was given this quiet, worshipful spirit. That she recognized what was important in the moment was that Jesus was there and that she should sit at his feet, listen to his teaching, be comforted, and be restored. As we get into the meat of the passage here, recognizing that Jesus is a resurrection and the life, we see in verses 21, 22, this being said, Martha said, to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, even, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. I want you to see this. This is a clear example of what a pugnacious faith looks like. So, Pastor, what is a pugnacious faith? It's a faith that is combative in the midst of his confidence, and yet at the same time, it embraces 
the effectiveness of that same faith. Look at her opening address to Jesus. She shows respect. She says, Lord, and this should be taken just as it was in verse 3, that she's a true believer and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. She recognized that he could do all things. Her first words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus has already verified this last week. I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sake. So this is not a rebuke. This is not like she's saying it's your fault because you were not here. Rather, these are words of grief and her great expectation of the true faith she had in Christ Jesus. She was confident that if Jesus had been present, her brother who was ill would not have died. But at the same time, you see here that Martha's pugnacious faith ran even deeper. She's not only persuaded that her brother would not have died, but even now, Lord, if you just said a word because of the intimate relationship that I know you have with God the Father, he will answer your prayers. You see, true faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Mary had this, or rather Martha had this type of faith in Jesus, and so should we. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I think this verse is a masterpiece in ambiguity. At one level, you hear the words of Jesus, your brother will rise again. And you might take that as a devout understanding, an orthodox attempt to provide some kind of comfort for Martha, drawing her attention away from the problem that is happening right now, focusing on the great resurrection that's going to happen at the end, teaching her, basically, that death will not have the last word on your brother, but I will at the last day. She understands that her brother will be risen bodily on the last day. She understands. She has a pharisaic belief in the resurrection. The reason I said she has a pharisaic belief because when it came to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, only the Pharisees believed about the resurrection. Look at Acts 23, 7 through 8. Acts 23, 7 through 8. And when he had said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said, there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. But here in this moment, Jesus is promising her more than resurrection in the last day. Jesus is promising her that he will be resurrected right now. You see, she misses the point. 
And sometimes when our hearts are broken, we too miss the point. We miss what Jesus is trying to say to us. And in those times of brokenness, we have to rely on the words that Jesus spoke in John 14, 1 through 2. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, but also believe in me. For it is only through the unfolding drama of this passage that the reality of who Jesus is and how much power Jesus has over death will really disclose the true meaning of his words. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus' response to her. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die yet, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus starts off, ego imi, I am. And he's repeated this fact that he will resurrect those of us who belong to him on the last day. John 5, 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to whomever he will. John 5, 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour has come or hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Get it straight. Everybody's going to get up. The key is where you're going. But everybody's going to get up. John 6 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. But here we see Jesus speaking to us in the here and now. He proclaims, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Jesus is not trying to divert Martha's focus through some abstract belief of what's going to take place on the last day. But he wants to deepen and he wants to develop her personal belief that he, Jesus Christ, is the only one that can provide this life, and resurrection. Jesus has already told us that he's a bread from heaven, but he's also the bread of life. 
He's also told us that he can raise the dead on the last day. But now he tells us he is the resurrection of and the life. We should understand that neither resurrection or eternal life is obtainable outside of Jesus. And then we see as John kind of firms up the text here. You look at resurrection and life and you might think they're the same thing. You might think that it's just redundancy, a preacher's way of reinforcing a point. Or you might recognize that resurrection and life might be two complementary things. But you know, I really think the second option is more credible, that there are two components. I am the resurrection and I am the life. That there are two different things that complement one another. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The word shall here as a sovereign direction that this must happen. Have you noticed that in English language, we don't use shell anymore unless we're most of the time aggressing a legal document? Because shell means it has to happen. We usually end up somewhere around should. But you see here, John is saying clearly that this is going to happen. This verb that he's using for live cannot mean simply being alive. That would be too trite. What he's saying here throughout his gospel, there's always a notion that life is invariably tied to life in God. Before then, look at Paul when he tells us, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Without Jesus, we're still dead. But we come alive when we give our trust and show faith in Christ Jesus. John always talks about a saving life. John always is talking about eternal life. John is always talking about a life that's in the kingdom of God. Here he says, whoever has eternal life and believes in me will never die. This is important. This clarifies that Jesus is the truth and the life. Jesus tells us in John 8, 51, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This brings us into the understanding of what is called the immediate state. And the immediate state is that whether I walk from here to my car and drop dead, The moment I drop dead from your vantage point, I'm immediately in the presence of God, conscious and knowledgeable of where I am. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. You stay in the immediate state until he comes back and, we, and he puts us back together when he calls us up in the air and we go into this holy ghost dressing room and it's changed immortality or change mortality for immortality. And then we go into what is called the eternal state that we will live with him forever. On this sphere of life, 
Life seems to ebb away. But Jesus gives us a life that will never end. So whoever believes in him shall not die. Now there's always a stress, really with most of the New Testament authors, but it's, I think especially with John, the stress of the now and the not yet. We have eternal life now, but we haven't seen the benefits of it yet. Kind of look, if you look at what Paul is saying, let's say in Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, listen to his words here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raises us up with him and seats us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. He's saying that in this moment, even though we're in this worship service, at the same time, we're in heaven, in heavenly places, seated with Christ. The now and the not yet. And both are true. They both are concomitant. They both happen simultaneously. And it goes on. Seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show us an immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared us beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is talking about the fact that God regenerated us. He gave us a new spiritual life within. He raised us up. He seated us with him. This is a very long sentence in Ephesians because it goes from Ephesians 2, 1 all the way to 10. That's one sentence in the original language. Christians are made, Christians who were dead are made alive before they could believe. So Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? He's not asking her if she believes that he's about to raise her brother from the dead. But if her faith can go beyond her quiet confidence that not only will he be raised in the last day because of her personal trust in Jesus, that Jesus can do something about the problem right now. 27, you see her reply. And her reply should be our model reply to anything that Jesus asks of us. Just the first two words. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha's yes is more than a confession, but it shows her personal confidence in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, he 
who was, he who is, and he who is to come. He who is coming into the world. He who everyone expects. Her yes confirms the very purpose of the gospel, or really the purpose of John's gospel, as you see in John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many things, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. Her yes here, guys, is more than just a mere repetition, not her self-righteousness. Her yes, that's, you know, there's a power of saying yes Yes to Jesus, yes to his will, yes to his way, yes, Lord. She's carrying the argument forward. You are the resurrection and the life. You are God's promised Messiah. And then she follows that with her firm. Yes, Lord, which means I believe this. Notitia is the understanding of the content. Of Christian faith. Fiducia is understanding, uh, having, understanding and having a trust and dependence upon God. And then a sensei is an extra, really an intellectual assent that Jesus is the Son of God. You need all three of those to have a firm faith. And I think Martha shows that she has all three of those. Then we see Jesus as he shows that he's a resurrection and a life, but he's also the true consoler of all of our hearts. Look at verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So Mary's yes really terminates that conversation she's having with Jesus at the point. There's really nothing else left to say after you've said yes. Martha now calls her sister aside, announcing Jesus' arrival and that Jesus wants to speak to her. We recognize this phrase, a teacher, Rabbi Rabboni, will just mean a uh, the fact that they were his disciples and they trusted his teaching and his preaching. The private meeting here, I don't think we can make much of it outside of the fact that they were most likely just trying to have some privacy in the midst of a house full of mourners, professional and otherwise. And then we see in verses 29 and 32, and when she heard it, she quickly arose and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary's rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet. 
Don't lose that, okay? She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So this attempt at privacy was really to no avail. The mourners, thinking that she was going to weep at the tomb, decided to follow her. Mary reaches Jesus. She falls at his feet. She falls prostrate. So she doesn't, the next sentence that she addresses him with is not a rebuke because she's already laying prostrate in front of him, showing that she trusts him, even though she doesn't mention it as clearly as Martha did. Her approach is more emotional than her sister. Her approach is more raw than her sister. You know, I don't know if we understand it or not. And we are never to address God disrespectfully. But do you know we can address God in the rawness of our emotion? And that it doesn't, and we can address him in places where we are vulnerable and volatile? Jesus is the one that tells us, Come to me, all of you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. So we can come even though we don't always have it together. You know, I challenge people time and time again who want or don't like to pray in public. Your public prayer shows whether you have private prayer. If you have private prayer, public prayer is nothing. Because you're not trying to entertain or bring these people in for a hand clap. You're talking to your father. And you have developed such a relationship that you can do that anywhere uninterrupted. Verse 33 here, when Jesus, saw, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, Jewish funeral customs dictated that even a poor family was expected to hire at least two flute players and one professional woman that would wail. Now, they were more, uh, they were not even close to being poor. So they could afford to bring, they would have regular mourners and they would have professional mourners that would come to a funeral. The first seven days of mourning were probably the most intense. And the mourners, all of them would stay with the family for the entire week, but mourning would continue to happen for 30 days. So Jesus is there. He sees the tears of Martha and Mary, her grieving friends. He sees the tears of both the professional mourners and the other mourners as well. Jesus is outraged in his spirit, and he's troubled. The Bible simply says in the shorted verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. 
Embry, my, oh my. It means to feel something deeply and strongly. So, Pastor, why did Jesus weep? I think there's four, at least four reasons. Jesus was profoundly sorrowful at the death of his friend and at the grief that the other friends expressed. So why did he weep? I think you see his sorrow is intermixed with anger at the evil of death, which is the final enemy, the one that he comes to defeat. So why did Jesus weep? I think there was a sense of awe and power, even in his human state, that was about to flow through him to triumph over death and to triumph over the unbelief of all those who were surrounding him? Why did Jesus weep? Momentarily, Jesus is fully man and fully God, and from a human perspective, he is overwhelmed by the fact that this same person who is going to raise Lazarus from the dead will one day raise all of us from the dead. When John writes that his spirit was troubled, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about his human spirit. I think the only way to really understand why Jesus wept is to address two questions. I think you first got to understand this crucial word, embry, my, oh my. What does it actually mean? Now, when it's used in a non-biblical sense, it can be referred to horses uh, snorting. But when it's referred in biblical terms, it always refers to human beings, and it suggests anger, outrage, emotional indignity. It, only, it occurs twice in this chapter alone. And many times I, when you read other translations, you see them soften the language. They may say, he groaned in his spirit. They might say, he sighed heavily. They might say, he was deeply touched. They might say, he was deeply moved in his spirit. They do all of this without any linguistic uh, justification. They decided to use those words. I don't think you can reduce anger, outrage, and emotional indignity to simple words like grief and empathy. Why was he angry? He was angry because he was angry with sin, the sickness of sin, the death that sin brings, the fallen world that had wreaked so much havoc and generated so much sorrow. He was angry, and his anger was directed at the unbelief all around him. He sees these women and these men, and they're grieving like pagans. They're grieving like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Understand this. Profound grief at such bereavement is natural. We're all going to grieve. We're human. We're fragile. But grief that degenerates into despair and that is poured out like loss is grief that is a denial of the resurrection that is to come. 
the way we grieve defines what we believe. And Jesus, even that he uttered terrible woes in Mark over the Matthew 23, he grieved over the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Even though we're told of God's wrath in Ephesians 2 and 3, we're also told of his great love after verse 4. You see, it's hard for us to be angry and to be loving at the same time. But that is not a problem for God. His indignation is not overwhelmed by his love. It says that Jesus wept. And it's a different sorrow than the sorrow that was displayed by the others. They shed tears for Lazarus. He shed tears, but he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. He was outraged by the grief that was demonstrated by their unbelief. Lastly, we see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the one that can keep us from dying. Look at verses 36 and 37. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Absolutely. The Jews interpreted this display of emotion from Jesus in two different ways, in ways that were both right and wrong. They see that Jesus weeps before Lazarus' tomb, and they said, look how he loved him. And their conclusion was true. Jesus did love Lazarus, and he loved his sisters. But Jesus' tears were scarcely evidence of it in the way that they imagined. For they understood grief to be just a despairing feeling. The others remembered, wait a minute. This is the same guy who healed the eyes of a blind man from birth. Could not someone who did that prevent it this? And they're absolutely right. He could have. Jesus already told you, and I am glad that I wasn't there. Infirmed that he would have prevented it. But here, we recognize that those who are betrayed before a holy God by their unbelief in the Son of God have no right to decide how he will wield his power. Jesus said in John 4:48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is still riding on his claim, I am the resurrection and the life. He's the source of both. 
knowing that there's no resurrection apart from him, there's no eternal life apart from him. His divine nature does more than give life. He is life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is life in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I think Paul gives us a clearer statement about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Go there with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Paul speaking. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. When he says this, he's saying, we shall not all sleep. We shall not all be in that immediate state before Jesus returns. But those who are, are in that immediate state, we with them will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put, on imper must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the same that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain knowing that if you stay steadfast to God's word, immutable to his purpose, abounding in your work and service to him, you will never be disappointed. There's a story about Pastor W.B. Henson from Portland, Oregon. He went to a doctor and he got a pretty bad report. The doctor told him he only had a year to live and that the illness he had, he could not recover from. He left the doctor's office about five miles from his home, and he went out and he walked the property that the Lord had given him over his years in ministry. He looked up at the beautiful sky, and he looked at the mountains that surrounded his property. He walked down to a river that came through his property line, and he said, as he looked to all of them, I might not see you any more past next year, but I want you all to know 
that I will be alive longer than you will. That when these same trees fall, I will still be alive. When this river drives up, I will still be alive. Because the one I serve is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you, and we accept fully the promise, the certainty of eternal life that comes with our faith and trust in you. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our trust. You are worthy of our worship. For you are God and God alone. So we give honor to all that you do. We ask you to build us and up on every leaning side. We ask you to continue to contribute to our confidence. And let us be able to encourage others that they, by trusting you, will never be disappointed. Regardless of what this world might say, let God be true and every man a liar. So, Lord, we trust you, we praise you, we love you. It's in the blessed name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.